So yesterday, I was walking out of my house, and my wife and I were about to run some errands, and while we were on our way to the car, we met a neighbor who was walking down the street. And for the, this was the third neighbor that we've met since we've been here, a guy who was on our street. And for the third time, this neighbor asked me, so what brought you to see our madre? And for the third time, I answered, I came here in order to take on uh, the role of pastor of that little church that just sits right in the middle of Sierra Madre. And for the third time, I got the same response. It went like this, huh. <laughs> and then awkward silence. <laughs> now, I didn't get into a long conversation with him, so I don't exactly know how to interpret the silence, but the way I interpreted the silence was something to the effect of, you know, they've had a negative experience with the church, and they don't really know how to take a guy like me. And maybe their experience was not negative with Sierra Madre Congregational Church. Maybe they had some other negative experience with Christians or with a church around, but it somehow rubbed them wrong, and it gave them that kind of response to my vocation. Now, of course, they aren't the only people that respond that way. It's a pastoral hazard to share with people what you do. You get that kind of response quite often. But, you know, studies will show and experience will tell you that for a lot of people, the reason why they don't embrace Christianity is not because they don't like Jesus or they don't like God. It's because they don't like the church. They've had a bad experience with Christians. G.K. Chesterton once quipped, the biggest problem to the truth of Christianity are Christians. It's the biggest obstacle. Or as Gandhi once quipped, He said, I would believe your Christians, or I would like your Christians a lot better if they were a little bit more like your Christ. Very often, it is the case that people have a negative experience with the church, with Christianity, and I think that's especially true in the time and the day that we live right now. And I think even in the last year with 85% of the evangelical vote going for Trump and with many people associating Donald Trump and kind of what his storied past is like with Christians today, it does rub people the wrong way. And they have certain assumptions, certain ideas about Christians because of the way it's being portrayed in the media, because of how they've experienced other people. In 1988, uh, Anne Rice, who's famous for writing these steamy, gothic, decidedly unchristian novels such as Interview with a Vampire, had a religious awakening, and Anne Rice converted to Christianity. And so she went from writing these steamy, gothic vampire novels to writing Christ-themed novels like Christ Our Lord Out of Egypt. But in 2010, she posted this on her Facebook page. She said, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, Today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being any part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputation, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. Now, she says, I think, more articulately and perhaps more strongly what many people within the church have felt. And maybe some of you have felt that way at a time in your own life, at a season, where you felt like, man, I've been disappointed. I've been let down. I've had enough of this disputatious, deservedly infamous group, and I'm out. 
And of course, the reason why many of us have had some of those thoughts before in our life is because oftentimes there exists a real tension in our experience of the church. It's maybe not a tension, maybe it's a disconnect. And it's a disconnect between what we would expect Christians and the church would be like and what we experience the church and Christians to be like. And so, for example, you might come here and what you expect is that people would be friendly and hospitable and they'd welcome you in and you're here for months and yet people still don't remember your name. Or maybe you're in the hospital, you're sick, or you're going through some crisis in your life and you would expect that somebody would call, they would drop a note, they would drop by, they would come and visit. But they don't. They don't visit you. You're left alone. You're wondering what's happening. You would expect that people would handle conflict well, that they would treat staff members well and people who transition off staff well, but then you see something different in the church. And you see a disconnect between the kind of church you expect and the kind of church you experience. Has anybody in the house ever experienced that disconnect? It doesn't take long to experience that in the church. There's this disconnect, this tension. Well, the good news is, I guess, that we're not the first group to experience that disconnect. It's actually been going on for a very, very long time. It goes all the way back to the very birth of the church, the very origins of the church. You know, so often people say, well, you know, we just need to get back to the early church. We just need to be like those first Christians. Really? Have you read about those first Christians? They were messed up too. They had the same problems we do. And this morning, we're going to begin a new series looking together at a church that was experienced probably more than any other church in the New Testament that we have, this disconnect between what we would expect the church to be and what this church was actually living like. And Paul writes a letter to this church to address them and their issues of what they've failed to be and to call them into the kind of people God wants them to be. And this morning, I want to begin by looking at the very opening verses in this text. And what I want you to see in these opening verses, what we're going to kind of gain out of these opening verses is a strategy, we could call it a discipline, that's necessary, it's like essential, in order to continue to embrace the church when you experience the disconnect. Or we could say it like this, this strategy is actually super important for continuing to move towards and to love people who disappoint you and let you down. And it's such a powerful, it's such a strong strategy that I think even if you're outside of the church, you're still kind of investigating Christianity today, I think if you see this strategy and you embrace it and you start to practice it, it actually will be helpful for you in dealing with people who have let you down and who fail to meet your expectations. And so what we're going to do is we're going to first walk through these verses. We're going to have to do some background, do some work, and then we'll come out at the end and we'll talk about the strategy. So you have to wait till the end to the payoff, and we'll have to do some work in between. Are we game with that? All right, well, let's go. So we'll start, we'll walk through the first nine verses or so. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now stop there. Very often when we think about books of the Bible or we think about the Bible, we think about the Bible as a book or maybe we think about the Bible as a collection of books. 
But it's more accurate to think about the Bible as a collection, not of books so much as a collection of writings of various kinds and of different sorts. And one of the most popular kinds of writings you find in the New Testament are epistles or letters. Uh, Somebody says, well, what's an epistle anyway? And somebody once said that an epistle was the wife of of an apostle. (laughs) That's actually not true. An epistle was a letter that was written by a leader to one of the churches. And there's different genres of epistles, different types of letters that were written. And Paul here is writing a letter to a church in Corinth. And it's dealing with a very specific situation that was happening in the church. And so right now, let's just note, we are reading someone else's mail. And so before we can actually come to understand God's word to us from 1 Corinthians, we have to first understand how this book was addressing the people in its own day as we kind of overhear this letter that Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. Now, who's Paul? Who's this guy, Sosthenes? Paul, of course, many of you will know, was one of the most famous converts to Christianity because he was a big-time persecutor of the church. He was out to kill Christians. Jesus met him in this profound religious experience, and he was converted, and he became the architect of the spread and the growth of the early Christian movement, probably the most influential Christian leader in the first century outside of Jesus himself. And Paul gets saved, and it's him who's writing this letter alongside this guy, Sosthenes, who you actually read about him in the book of Acts, which is a historical record of the early church. And he was a convert in the city of Corinth. He was a ruler in the synagogue. He actually, toward the end of Paul's stay there, they got taken in to the authorities. Some of the Jews there were not happy with what Paul was doing, and so he got taken in there. And the magistrate basically said, look, this is your own matter. Don't bother with us. And they kicked him out, but then they kind of turned the other way while a mob got together and beat up this guy Sosthenes. So he was a serious dude, a serious follower of Jesus. He was a companion of Paul, partner with him in ministry. And Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. So let's talk for a bit about Corinth. So there it is. You can see it there. It, uh, Corinth sits in an isthmus. And I remember back uh, from the Little Rascals, I remember it was like Spanky or somebody was in a spelling bee, and he was asked to use the word isthmus in a sentence, and he said, isthmus be my lucky day. Some of you may remember that. That was really lame. But anyway, it was a really critical city, the most important city in Greece in the first century. It was the largest, most prominent, most affluent city. It was actually destroyed in 146 BC, but then it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. And it had been completely sacked, completely leveled, but then Julius Caesar rebuilt it as this glorious city that became a very important port city, an important city for trade. And the harbor there was not a whole lot different than, let's say, the harbor for Long Beach in LA. I mean, it's huge within the the, the globe at that time, and there was a lot of commerce, a lot of money was being made in the city of Corinth. And so here's some images from, you know, some uh, depictions of what the city probably looked like. But you can see from these images here that it was a pretty well-to-do place. And a lot of people were being resettled from Rome to go there and kind of build their lives anew. And it was a city that was marked by upward mobility. 
And it was a pretty uh, sexually licentious place. There was a lot of divisions politically in the culture. Does anybody hear any similarities? A big port city, lots of divisions, kind of a sexualized kind of culture, and lots of money, upward mobility, any commonality with LA, yeah. Here's some ruins from uh, modern day Corinth. But after Paul was there for about 18 months, there was a church of maybe two, 300 plus people meeting in maybe three, four, five different larger well-to-do homes within the city. And about three or four years after Paul left Corinth, somebody from one of the house churches, Chloe's house church, actually comes to Paul and, and they deliver to Paul a list of questions that the church was dealing with. And so in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul writes this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So do you hear what he's doing there? He's alluding to a set of issues that were raised to him by a group of people who brought some, hey, you know, they, they raised a bunch of issues. And the issues were varied, and they were many. For example, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning issues of sex and marriage. And then chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Now concerning singleness. And then chapter 8, verse 1, he says, now concerning that issue that you asked about food that had been offered to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning the question you had about spiritual gifts. Chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the question you asked me about collection of the poor. And then chapter 16, verse 12, apparently there was a, a leader, Apollos, that they were familiar with. They had questions about And he says, now concerning that leader, Apollos, let me tell you about him. So do you see what he's doing in this letter? He's answering a list of questions that were put to him. And so we're going to spend some time kind of better understanding those questions and all that. But he wasn't just responding to questions that they put to him. He was responding to a report that he had heard about them. Now, I can just imagine these uh, people from Chloe's household come to Paul and they're like, man... They brought you a list of questions, but there's a lot of stuff they didn't leave in this list. There's a lot of stuff happening in the church. And in fact, you can see in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, look what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For, verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. He says, look, Chloe's people gave me a whole, they told me a whole lot about you. And as you read through the, the, the book, you see that there's more stuff they told. For example, uh, they revealed in chapter 5, verse 1, that somebody in the church had actually taken his mother-in-law to be his lady. And he says, now concerning, he, he, he addresses him. He says, it's been reported to me that this has happened. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, it had been reported to him that they were taking each other to court. Chapter 11, verse 20, this is the most shocking of it all. It had been reported to him that there were people at the Lord's Supper who were poor that were being left out because it was actually a meal. They didn't just have little bits of cracker and little thimbles of grape juice. They had a meal together for the Lord's Supper. But some people who were poor were being left out and other people were gluttoning themselves and getting drunk. Are you seeing that this church is a little bit of a mess? They were probably not meeting his expectations. And so Paul hears all of these problems and he starts to address them in this letter. Now, what's interesting to me, though, is 
in spite of the fact that this church was such a mess, that they had so many problems, they were quarreling, they were divisive. Could you imagine a church that was quarreling and divisive? It's crazy, right? I mean, could you imagine that actually happening? And, um, but he hears about them, he hears about all these problems, but I want you to see how he responds in these opening verses. I want you to note the very first thing that he does. Number one, the very first thing that he does before he confronts them, he's going to confront them, he's going to challenge them, he's going to address the issues, but before he confronts them about their problems, he reminds them and us about our identity and our high calling. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Messiah, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he, he reminds them and us of our identity. You know, to be a Christian, it means a lot of stuff. It means to be rescued, and it means to be on mission, and it means to get a new family, but to be a Christian also means to get a new identity. Listen, you are no longer defined by your past. You're no longer defined by your failures. You're no longer defined by your successes. You're no longer defined by the college you went to or the job you have or whatever you put on your resume to impress other people or post on Instagram to look good. You're not defined by any of that. Here's how you are defined. Here's your new identity. You, according to this text, are a saint of God. Now, we need to talk about this because what does that mean? You know, this word saint is one of these words that we throw around in our culture. It's used a lot in different ways, in different shapes. A while back, we uh, got a book, and I think it reflected, you know, the view that a lot of people have towards saints. Saints are these really special, especially holy people, you know, who have these special things going on for them. They're saintly. It was a book about St. Nicholas, actually, that some friends of ours gave us for Christmas, And it describes St. Nicholas in the most exaggerated, you know, dramatic ways. It says this. This was the opening couple pages. You have to just imagine kind of the cartoon pictures that are with us. It says, as soon as he was born, he showed great miraculous power. On his very first day, he stood up in his bath and prayed to God. As a toddler, he fasted on every holy saint's day. He refused to nurse preferring to pray all day long. Anybody here have any toddlers in the house who refuse to nurse because they're fasting and praying all day long? In the Catholic tradition, you can only reach sainthood by jumping through a lot of hoops. First, you have to be dead for at least five years. And then you have to have been known to live an exceptionally heroically virtuous life. And then only after you've been prayed to after death and miracles have occurred in response to prayers to you, can you actually reach the level and be declared by the Pope as a saint. But you know, in the New Testament, 
Saint is not a special category of Christian. It's not a special uber-duper, super-holy Christian. A saint is the equivalent of a Christian. But what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, this word saint, which comes from the Greek word hagioi, is also translated holy, holy. And there were a lot of holy things in the Old Testament. For example, the priesthood was holy because they were set apart, which is literally what that word means. It means to set apart for special usage. And God had set apart this group of people to be his representatives to others of his own will to them, and then also to represent the people before the face of God through their prayers. They were the mediators, as it were. They had a holy, special, set-apart role. And then in the temple, there were set-apart instruments and utensils. For example, there were bowls that were used in worship. And the bowls couldn't be used for common use. You couldn't put a bowl of cereal in there or oats or whatever. Like, you had to only use those in the temple. They were set apart for special, sacred use. But do you see what this says about you and me if you're a follower of Jesus? You have been set apart for sacred use. It's not just ministers or missionaries who have some special calling to be set apart to serve God. All the community of faith is set apart for use and for service of God, to be agents and witnesses of the kingdom of God in this world. That's a high calling, friends. God has called you. He has set you apart to participate, to be active participants in the cosmic drama of redemption. That's big. You know, sometimes, you know, I've talked to people as I've talked to them about this church. I've said, oh, you know, we have a 132-year-old history. Listen, the church's history is much longer than that. We go all the way back, all the way back to Abraham and to Israel being formed into God's special people on the earth, to Jesus through whom we can be brought into this special people to be his special agents and witnesses in all of the world, bearing witness to the love of God and how we live and how we open up our homes and how we speak and how we treat people. We are God's sanctified, holy, set-apart people for his use in this world. That's a beautiful calling, isn't it? But here's the rub. Saints are also sinners. I don't know if you saw on the sign on the way in, but it says, welcome all saints and sinners. Can kind of miscommunicate, couldn't it? As if to say, if you're a sinner, you're welcome. If you're a saint, you're welcome. But according to scripture, there's not two categories of people. There's not saints and then sinners. Saints are also those who are simultaneously sinners. Back in the Protestant Reformation, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther coined this term, simul justus et peccator, which means simul, that could be translated simultaneously, at the same time, Eustace, just or righteous, et, which you know et, right? Like you, you had dinner last night, you et dinner last night. No, et is and, as in et tu, Brute, and you, Brutus. Simultaneously, righteous and peccator is sinner. 
Those who are followers of Jesus are simultaneously both being healed and restored and embraced by God, and yet we are still broken people in deep need of mending. But this is what creates problems, isn't it? That's your identity, and that's the identity of people around you. And so that means a whole lot of things. It means sometimes when you come to church, you're going to find people who are just as selfish as you are. Sometimes people who are arrogant, sometimes people who are self-righteous and judgmental, very often those are going to be yourself as well. You're going to fall into those patterns of behavior. And that's going to create problems in the church. It creates divisions. It creates issues. It created issues in the church in Corinth. It creates issues here. So what do we do? How do we embrace and love people who fail to meet our expectations, who are broken and a mess? How do we continue to engage in the church when we're continually let down by the church? Or let me just put it like this. I'll put it as direct as this. This church is going to let you down. It's likely it's already let you down. I'm going to let you down. It's likely I've already let you down. What do we do? How do we continue to love and embrace a community that perpetually lets us down? Paul gives us a strategy here, and I want you to see it. I want you to see after he reminds us of our identity, secondly, I want you to see he thanks God for his grace. So here's the strategy. Here's the discipline that you and I need to engage in. Here's the discipline that the Apostle Paul engaged in that you and I need to continually practice, and it's this. Always, often, thank God for what is, not for what's not. Always, often, recognize and notice where the grace of God is at work in a church, not where it's not. Now, Paul, in the rest of this letter, and we're going to see this, and it's quite interesting, he gets in their face. Like, Paul is not afraid to speak truthfully about issues in the church. I'm not either. Like, as stuff arises in this church, the best way to deal with them is to be honest and to call stuff out and to name it and to deal with it, to have face-to-face conversations, to not passive-aggressively talk about people behind their back or criticize the leadership and all those people out there. Like, the best way to deal with stuff is direct, honest, specific speech with one another. Amen? And Paul's going to do this. You know, it says in the book of Proverbs that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You need and I need people who will speak truth into our lives because often we get off track a bit. And we need truth. We need to be exposed. We need to be addressed. And we need to be drawn to repentance. And Paul's going to do that in this church. But before he addresses their sin, he thanks God for his grace. And this is the strategy continually, regularly engage in giving God thanks for the work that he is doing among us. And look at how Paul does it in verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, one way to read that is... I have at least this to thank God for you people. You church are a mess, but I can thank God for this. He's been gracious to even you. And at a bare minimums, I think we can go there, but 
Paul's actually not saying that. He's not just thanking them that God has poured out his grace on them in spite of themselves. He's thanking them for the gifts that he notices among the church. Look what he says. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. How is this grace manifest? That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. This is remarkable, and it's ironic, because later it is their speech and their knowledge that's actually going to create problems for this church, because they're going to think, I know a lot, I have so much knowledge, and we're so gifted, and we have so many word gifts here, and and Paul's going to call them out for that kind of arrogance, but before he calls them out, he actually recognizes that there's something there. He's noticing the grace of God coming to fruition among them. And listen, I just want to let you guys know, like our family has been here now for three months. And when people ask me how it's going, the most common answer I give them is this. I say, I am continually experiencing the grace and the goodness of God through this group of people. I thank God for you. I thank God for the way in which when we came here, we experienced the generosity and the hospitality of Jesus through so many of your lives. I thank God for the way in which I see his grace at work among so many of you, that you've stuck with this church through the most difficult of seasons, and you've not been a consumer Christian that left consuming this good in service to go pursue some other church. You've stuck it out, and you've been faithful, and you've prayed, and there's God's grace at work among us. And so I give God thanks always for you and for the grace that is at work among you. And this is a key. Do you know how to recognize the grace of God at work among other people? You know, some of you, you are glass half empty people when it comes to others. And you walk in a church experience a worship service, a community group, and you walk out and the only thing you can say are things that were not there. And you're a critic. And you're always acute, you know, you know this is wrong and that's wrong. And, and I don't know why that is for some of you. Maybe for some of you it's because you're insecure and the only way you can actually feel better about yourself is by criticizing others. Maybe for some of you it's because you're just upset because God hasn't done for you what you expected he would do for you. Your kids aren't walking with the Lord and you prayed and he didn't answer your prayer. Your spouse is sick and you're bitter and you're angry inside. And so it's coming out in this vitriol and this criticism always all the time. But Paul is modeling for us the spiritual discipline of gratitude. He's modeling for us the spiritual discipline of notice. Noticing the grace of God at work among you. Seeing what is there. Not ignoring what's not there. Not addressing it, but first and regularly making it a habitual spiritual discipline, a pattern in your life that you're always recognizing and giving thanks to God for his grace and for his gifts. Because the reality is this. The next breath you take is only yours by the grace of God. And you live today by grace. Like you deserve nothing from God 
all that God has poured out on you, which is everything, because God has given you God's very own self, it is by sheer, unmerited, unmitigated, undeserved grace. It is the delight and love of God poured out on you when you didn't deserve it. And it's not just you, it's everyone in this room. And so every single one of us has cause to recognize where we see grace and to give God thanks. But he not, just, he not only gives God thanks for the grace that brought them and then the grace that is gifting them, but he gives God thanks for the grace that will sustain them. Look at how he puts it in verse 8. He says, or verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine him saying that about this church? He's like, you're a mess, but I am confident that the grace of God that began this work will complete it. Whatever begins in grace ends in glory. The grace that brought you to Christ will continue to sustain you. Does grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace will what? It will bring me home. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you practice the discipline of giving thanks regularly, continually, for where you see signs of grace around you? Friends, we are moving ahead as a church and there's gonna be changes ahead. And there's gonna be reasons for you to feel disappointed for your expectations to be let down. I guarantee it. I'm gonna make missteps. I'm not, not every decision. I'm not the, um, uh, uh, I don't have the Midas touch. Everything I touch doesn't turn to gold. And we're gonna fail each other. We're gonna let each other down. But let's seed the soil of this community with continual ongoing gratitude for the grace that is here, not for criticism for all the ways we fail each other. I want to close this morning with a quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a leader in this group of dissidents that broke off from the Nazi party, and they plotted to assassinate Hitler And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was apprehended and ultimately put to death for his role in the assassination plot. But he was also a leader in the underground church. And he wrote a number of books. He was a great theologian. And he wrote this gem of a book called Life Together. If you've not read it, you need to. It's incredible. But in this book, he talks about these people who he calls uh, wish dreamers. And he says there are people who come to the Christian community with a dream and a wish of what it should be. In other words, they have idealism. And so the church should be marked by radical generosity and we should all be living together and sharing our resources together and caring for the poor and being radical and never forgetting anybody or leaving anyone out. And there should be no uh, racism. There should be this multi-ethnic, multi-generational community of people who love each other and get along and whose political differences never get in the way and never cause any disputes or anything. He says they come to the church with the church should be that, amen? And then he says this, those who love their dream of the Christian community 
more than the Christian community itself. He says, here's the problem. You love your wish dream, your ideal, more than the living, breathing, messed up, but saved by the grace of God people around you. And he says, as a result, he says, they become destroyers of the Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest and earnest and sacrificial, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and themselves. And they enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law, and they judge one another and God accordingly. But he says, it's Christ who's building his church. And so he says, instead of coming to the church as an accuser, which, by the way, who's the accuser of the church? It's the devil. He says, instead, we shouldn't come as an accuser and a critic, but instead as a grateful recipient who receives the fellowship we do have as a gift from the hand of God. And he says this, in the Christian community, thankfulness, thankfulness is just what it is anywhere else in the Christian life. Only he who gives thanks for the little things receives the big things. We prevent God from giving us the great spiritual things he has in store for us. So I want great things in store for this church. I would love to see renewal and awakening break out here. I would love to see this church grow and see more and more people have their addictions broken and to be freed and to meet Jesus and to become active, faithful witnesses of the love of God with their hands and their works of justice and mercy in the city and in LA and make a difference. But he says, we prevent God from giving us the great spiritual things he has in store for us because we do not give thanks for the daily gifts. We think we dare not be satisfied with the small measure of spiritual knowledge, experience, and love that he has given to us, and that we must constantly be looking eagerly for the highest good. And then we deplore the fact that we lack deep certainty and strong faith in the rich experience that God has given to others. And we consider this lament to be pious. And we pray for the big things and forget to give thanks for the ordinary, small gifts. But how can God entrust great things to the one who will not receive from him the little things? If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, he says, this, what might feel paltry, is the gift of God to us. And so let's receive each other and where we see the grace of God among us as sheer gift from his hand. You know, it's appropriate that we end our time together by spending some time at the Lord's table because this is the table where God extends to us in tangible, physical ways his unmitigated, unreserved, undeserved grace. God has given you and me his very self in his son, Jesus. And when you consume the bread and drink the cup, you are being reminded, you are practicing the reality that your life 
has been given to you through Jesus Christ. You have been made one with Jesus. You are a part of him. You are actually set apart in and through Jesus Christ who has lavished his grace upon you. And he's not just lavished his grace upon you, but to others in this room. 